Greetings and welcome to episode four of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. I am your host, Border Patrol Agent Gil Maza. As a Border Patrol Agent for over 23 years now, I have always admired and respected our rich, action-packed, and colorful heritage. My genuine were hardcore, kick-ass alien catchers, and they passed on their knowledge, experience, and all our bad habits onto the next generation. Today, we will be talking with Old Patroller Charles Kaufman. You may have noticed him on Old Patrol HQ by all the Polaroids he took back in the day. He was in session 112 in Los Fresnos, Texas. Join us as we go back in time to the Old Patrol days and relive their experiences and adventures straight from those Border Patrol agents themselves. Ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first, honor always. Good morning and welcome to episode four of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. I'm your host Gil Maza and I am here today with Old Patrolman Charles Kaufman who was in the 112th session in Los Fresnos, Texas. Good morning, sir. How are you today? Hey, good morning. Doing fine. Excellent. Well, I'd like to get started this morning by uh, telling you that uh, it's my honor and pleasure to be here t- this morning with you. Uh, conducting this interview, wanting to hear about your past uh, experiences and adventures in the Old Patrol. And I'd like to start out by just by asking you, um, how did you get started uh, in the patrol in the beginning? Well, I was a harbor policeman with the, in, in the port of New Orleans with the harbor police. And I met some of the Border Patrol agents that used to go down to the ships. I guess they'd have stowaways and problems with crewmen and everything. And I got to talking with some of them. And um, it sounded like an interesting job. They told, you how, told me how you start on the Mexican border and all the stuff out in the desert. And I kind of liked the outdoors. I had a college degree in wildlife management. And, and, um, and I wanted an outdoor job. So I wound up applying for Border Patrol. And I got stationed out in uh, Presidio, Texas when I was hired. That was your very first duty station? That was my very first duty station. <laughs> what a change from New Orleans. It went from like 90% humidity down to probably less than 10% humidity in that bowl down there in Presidio. <laughs> and it was a complete opposite of what I was used to. Oh, I, I can it was, imagine. It was nice. It was out in the outdoors. It must have been quite a culture shock to go from Louisiana to Texas like that. Oh, it was. It, I remember when I first got to Presidio, it was uh, February of 77 when I got out of the academy. I went seven months without seeing rain. Oh. I remember the first month it was great. I said, oh, this is great, blue sky and sunshine, you know. And then after <laughs> the second month and then the third month, I said, well, I could stand a little bit of rain. And no, we went seven months, did not see a drop of rain. Oh. And so um, what happened, when you first got there, uh, what was it like? What was the work like? Uh, it was completely different from anything I had seen. I had never been in a desert in my life, so it was just a lot of what used to the physical terrain, the rocks, the cactus, everything out there has a spine on it. I found that out. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing out there. It doesn't have, it doesn't have a thorn. Uh, but it was, uh, I enjoyed the freedom. That's one of the things I liked out there the most. It was a roughly a twenty man station. People mm-hmm. always transferring in and out because of the hardship station. But it was a roughly twenty men. There was one PAIC and one senior, and that was it. Ah. And it was so remote of an area that you were out of radio contact a good portion of the time when you go off in a 
anything you wanted to do. They'd say work the east side or work the west side, and you get in your Jeep and you take off. And that was it. You were gone the rest of the day. Any area you wanted to track or anything you wanted to do, there was no supervision. Anything you got into, you handled it yourself. Oh. It was, I mean, that's just the way it was back then. Yes, yes. And uh, what what was the primary kind of work up there? Was it a lot of sign cutting, uh, uh, dope? Primarily, everything. Uh, primarily, I'd say it was a fifty percent of your time was sign cutting, and then if you worked the highways at night, it was uh, nothing but alien loads coming up the highway and and dope. And then in the summertime, during onion and melon season, we had some farm and ranch check, and so it was a combination of just about everything and uh who, who were some of the guys that you worked with back in those days oh geez let me see we had uh <laughs> wayne weemers he uh he was a number one dope catcher in the station uh M mike murphy he was the paic and jw hewitt was the, was the senior the assistant paic had mario vargas um Ken Kramer, Carlos Salazar, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Um, Bob Marin, uh, John Carter was there. Loretto Vasquez, uh, Jerry Gulliher. Mm -hmm. There was a bunch of them. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, and, uh, some of them might still be uh, on Facebook. Maybe they'll even hear this uh, podcast later on. Yeah, it could be. Some of them are, are deceased now. I know Gulliher and Marin aren't around anymore. Jim Leach isn't around. Louis Stahl, he, he became a helicopter pilot, but he got killed out in El Paso in a crash. Oh. There's quite a few fellas that we lost. I see. But there, there should still be some of them around. Right. And how long How long did you work Presidio, sir? Uh, I was only there roughly two years. I was... Um, we went on some details out there, but not too many people got detailed out to other areas, which just usually within Marfa sector. Uh -huh. But it was a hardship station. I was there for two years, and after I transferred out, man, I, I regretted, in many ways, I regretted leaving. Because I, the state, the duty, it was a hardship station because there was nothing there in town. But the work was just, you can't get better work than that. It was, sometimes you go out to work, you, you can't believe that you're being paid <laughs> to do what you're doing you really you feel like you should be paying some paying the government to let you do some of the stuff you do i mean there's people that would be willing to pay to do some of the stuff that we were doing it was a uh, I, I missed it my entire career after i had left but the only and i would have gladly stayed except there's no place to really raise a family that's uh -huh. what's bad about presidio it's the best work you could have but it's not really family conducive there's literally nothing for the children or your wife or anything else to do. At least back then, there was there was nothing there. Yeah. So uh, as as far as the work goes, uh, as, you know, as far as you were concerned, it was a it was a badge, a gun, and the paycheck was just a bonus. You're right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was. You go out there, and some days you just if if in the middle of the summer, if it was say July or August, and the temperature is like 115, close to 120 degrees. It's so hot that nobody can cross. You literally can't make it across the desert. You can't carry enough water with you. Mm. You die of thirst. And so there was no sign cutting to do in certain times of the year because it was just too doggone hot. And you get working the east side up the Casa Piedra Highway or out in the mountains, there's literally nothing to do 
and you got all day to do it in. So we just explored Indian caves and looked at the paintings and the air, picked up arrowheads, and you just basically explored the whole countryside because there was nothing else to do. Wow. I mean, it was, it was total freedom. I mean, you had no radio contact in a lot of those areas. Sometimes we carried two spare tires in case you got a, a, a extra flat or something like that. There's what time we had those old doggone ram chargers, that's seventy six and seventy seven Dodge Ram chargers. I think it was the worst vehicle put on four wheels, <laughs> and they would break down all the time out there in the mountains. And then you're stuck until they find you the next day. Ah, oh, jeez. Spent <laughs> many a night out there in the desert. And nobody knew you were missing until you didn't show back up at the station that evening. It's like, uh-oh, somebody's missing. If they say, where was he working? And they say, well, he was assigned to the east side. Well, that's a couple thousand square miles. Oh, you could be anywhere out there. And you got stuck out there a few times like that? Yeah, with those ram charges. Uh, I sent one one time. had to spend the night before they found me the next day. And then... The, uh, the ram charges, the problem they had is that, uh, that might be before your time, Chrysler was going bankrupt back then, uh-huh. and the government was bailing them out, so they were buying Chrysler products, Dodge, Plymouth, and Chrysler, and the service was buying all these Dodge vehicles, these ram charges, and Chrysler uh, was trying to cut back on expenses. They didn't put any lock washers on the hold-down bolts for the batteries back then. Little cheap lock washer. And you'd be out bouncing around out there in the desert, you know, in the mountains, and the battery clamp would come loose, and you didn't know it. Oh. And the battery would fall off the tray against the exhaust manifold. Huh. And they had 318 V8s back then. Well, it would melt the battery in half, and you didn't know that. Mm. <laughs> you're out in the middle of the <laughs> desert, and everything's great, because the alternator's keeping the engine running. But as soon as you turn the engine off, that's it. You're it's totally dead because the battery doesn't have anything left in it. And you can't use the radio, you can't do anything. You're just stuck. Wherever you happen to have turned the engine off, you're stuck. Oh, man. And you're down a ravine or someplace, or we're going to go track aliens through a canyon or something. You're there until somebody finds you. <laughs> so after, you, after you've gone and done hours of sign cut, maybe even ap- uh, you know caught the group and everything else like that, you go back to a ride that's literally useless at this point. Exactly. You oh, have nothing. Man. <laughs> so you shoot there's plenty of food out there I mean there's rabbits everywhere and all kinds of critters so you can and we always carry extra ammo in our ammo box or in a mini 14 so you can shoot your food and build a fire and there's no problem getting food and you know just wait until the plane can find you the next day so you could you, you had a walkie talkie but a lot of times it didn't get out you had to climb usually you try to find the lowest hill or mountain that you could climb and you go up the side of one of those until you could get a click on the repeater, and then you could call somebody. But sometimes in the area, it was just too doggone remote. You, you couldn't get out at all. Uh, I, I had a uh, we had a, a guy out here in El Cajon way back when I when I came in was what was you know I'm I'm relatively new. I've been in uh, a, a little over twenty three years now. It'll be uh, I retire next March. But uh, back in nineteen ninety six, when I uh, got to El Cajon Station, there was a PA that used to go out and. He used to hunt rabbits and snakes, and he'd put them in a cooler, and at the end of the day, take them home and fix them up and eat them. And so, yeah, uh, we did. So you're saying that when you'd get stuck like that, you'd go out and hunt your rabbits, and then you'd prepare them out there, and and, and that's how you'd eat for the night. Yeah, oh yeah, 
Many, how many other uh, agents would have thought of something like that? I know if I if I had ended up there uh, in that way, I probably would have starved. Yeah, oh, no, you, you, you get by. Well, you know, uh, I, the plane, I, would usually, plane would usually find you the next day. That luckily the vehicle had white lids on top, so I mean they kind of stuck out pretty good when you're flying up in the air and you look down. They could see that white eventually. Well, you build a little fire. I always carried a mirror with me too, in case it was daylight. That way, you could try to maybe make a reflection towards the, the helicopter. Yeah, um, oh, the, not the helicopter. Excuse me, the uh, airplane. Yeah. We didn't have a helicopter out there. Yeah, it's a good idea. Well, you know, uh, the, the, these stories might 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 be a little hard to believe, but uh, you in particular, one of the things that drew my attention was the fact that you have literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Polaroids. That um, that you took back when you were working, and including many of them that actually you, uh, you were holding up rabbits that you hunted. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd usually be with a rat though. We'd have contests. I mean, like we'd leave the station as soon as we pull out the station, and we'd go down the highway. You turn on what they call the Casa Piedra Highway. It's a gravel road and leads out in the middle of the desert. And as soon as we turn on that, we'd automatically. The guys I was working with, we'd unload, we'd take out, we had dual six guns back then. Everybody carried a Smith & Wesson Model 19. We'd take the, the 357s out and stick wad cutters in. And then if you're riding tan, you know, with a, with a partner, uh, anything on, say I was the driver, okay, mm -hmm. anything on my side of the vehicle, any jackrabbit we saw on my side, I would shoot it. Anything on the passenger side, he would shoot it. And you just ride out there, and you know, we'd be sign-cutting and working, but at the same time, we're keeping our eye out for rabbits. And we'd have a contest to see who could hit the most jackrabbits. Oh, and at the end of the day, when you go back in at the end of your shift, say around 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 3, we'd always stop at Mary's Cafe and get a, a, a glass of iced tea. I, that was kind of, the whole station would kind of have a little meeting right there where everybody at the end of the shift would meet there and get iced tea. Well, the loser had to buy the iced tea <laughs> on the jackrabbit deal. And so that, and this went on every day. It was just a contest to see who could hit the most jackrabbits. Oh, my gosh. And you realize that in this day, what would happen to any of us if we tried to do that? Oh, I imagine it'd be all Honda problems. Because I know they came out with all Honda crazy rules saying, we laughed at it, saying, you, uh, you can't remove historical artifacts. You know, you know, picking up. 
up our heads. Yeah. Everybody out there had, I don't know, probably a half dozen matates. They, they were laying all over the countryside, the rocks with the big hole in them, the Indians used to grind corn in. Yes. Everybody had those. I still got two of them out here in front of my house here in Louisiana that I brought back from Presidio. I use those as decoration in the garden. Oh, my so, God. Everybody brought back stuff. Yeah, and, and now we're actually we are actually mandated to take a class every year. We have to take uh, on the computer a class uh, explaining how we're to leave in the environment alone, pristine. Don't walk over certain paths. Don't drive certain areas. Things like that to preserve the environment, and uh, and especially don't grab anything, you know, and take it away from the from the from the area as well. No. They gave it to Saul Ross University. It was in a clay, almost like a cocoon, like a clay covering over this Indian. And uh, another guy had found an old leather belt, gun belt with a six gun still in it. It was all rusted up and everything and corroded. But, um, I mean, the, the artifacts are laying out there. I remember finding bullet casings from the cavalry laying out there. No kidding. So a lot of the area that you worked didn't have a lot of human humanity on it ever, you know, uh, you know, walking it, trekking it, except possibly the aliens trying to get in and you out there uh, chasing them. Right. We were out in areas where probably no one had ever been. There's a, there was no barbed wire fences. It's just open desert. It's all, tech, technically it's private ranch land. But I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of acres of nothing on a ranch, ranch Average ranch out there was forty or fifty thousand acres. And the Big Bend ranch, it was over a quarter million acres. Uh, these were all private ranches, but it's just desert as far as the eye can see, and it's so remote and so rugged, no one's ever going to walk out there. And so, other than the aliens walking through the countryside near the wets, there was n never anyone out there. So, you a lot of these areas you go into, it's just pristine area. I remember we came across sites out there that still had the uh the, the teepee rings they call it the rocks were put in a circle yes where they build teepees and they're still sitting there i mean undisturbed for probably 150 200 years wow unbelievable did you ever deal with anybody trying to drive through in that area from mexico uh no you couldn't get across oh you i mean So everything that came in, came in on foot. Everything was on foot. Everything. Uh, we did find one time I was on what they call the West End, the West Drag, which is west of town, towards Rio Dosa. We had a, uh, we had, that's the drag that had that nice clean area that I cut with a tractor that you saw in the pictures. Uh-huh. The real smooth drag. We had a track came across there and said, what in the world is this? It was just a line. And later on, we up way up the line uh, to a shaft or 
bicycle that was on metal rims. I wow. And he, it, he was crossing the desert, kind of a flat, like a big open mesa type area. Yeah. Got a lot of cactus and rocks, but technically you can walk or you could ride a bicycle through it. But there's so many thorns and rocks, you'd get a flat. But he was riding a bicycle that had nothing but metal rims, two metal rims. It's <laughs> 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 the only time I've ever seen that in my entire career. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so uh, you, uh, one of the things that I hear a lot of people saying uh, from back in the day is they wish they had taken more pictures. They wish there had been an opportunity. But man, you really went um, went all out in making sure you took a lot of pictures. I mean, you took pictures of hunting rabbits. You've taken pictures. I, one of the ones that I like in particular is uh, the one where you're shooting a tire to actually make a drag. Yeah, that was after that big flood. We had a tractor that we usually maintain the drags with, but the tractor was usually for the west end. The east drag was, uh, the way it was built, it was kind of hard to get a tractor. It was uh, real steep hillsides and countrysides. It was too risky to bring a, tr a tractor out there without flipping it. Mm -hmm. And so we used to use the tire drags out there. And we had that big flood where it had flooded the whole river. Uh, you saw that in some of the pictures uh back in uh, when I was out there and when the water finally went down the ground was all caked up it was like the adobe type clay well once it got wet that stuff was like concrete you mm -hmm. couldn't track anything like trying to track on, on a concrete street so we had to go bust up all the dirt and everything and get it soft again and we could see the footprints so we went out to the city dump and with cables and stuff and we were going to make a bunch of tire drags and there's no way to, you know, you know what a tire drag looks like. There's no way to get a hole in those things. So we figured, well, the easiest way was just to go ahead and let's get some slugs and shoot holes up. <laughs> that way we could slide the cable through. And so that's what, what we did. I went out there and just took a box of uh, slugs and we started shooting tires and made made our own drags like that. Oh man, well, you know, that, and that goes with the from from the history of the patrol. I remember reading some stuff back in the day where it said that you know they were asking for so much money, and uh, they were they were denied the money. And that year, they actually doubled every uh, every effort the, uh, the the enforcement effort, the arrest, everything doubled, even though they only received half the money. And the border patrol has been doing that ever since, hasn't it? Uh, through your time, and even in uh, in in my time here and today. We tend to do the most with the very with the very little, and we adapt and we improvise and we just make it up as we go along. Sometimes, and you got the pictures to prove it. Yeah, that's how you did things. If somebody thought up a way of doing it, you didn't have to. There was no supervisors, and the ones that were out there, they said, "Yeah, go ahead and do it." Nobody cared. I mean, we didn't have all the regulations, so if you needed to get holes in the tire, ammunition was was plentiful. Uh, they didn't they give you that all you want so yeah we'd do whatever you have to do the gun was like a tool mm -hmm. back then it was you carried it for self-defense but it was an actual tool i remember going down the river driving one time one of the ranchers out there his uh barbed wire fence i don't know how it happened but anyway he hit some broken strands of barbed wire and a bunch of his cattle had gotten out and they were on the highway it's real remote area. I mean, you could go for an hour and not even see a vehicle on the highway. But he was trying to get his cattle rounded up and back in his fence. I said, well, hang on, I'll give you, a, give you a hand with it. And I got, I drove down the road about a half mile and got past where all the cattle were milled out there on the road. 
and then used a ram charger, and I remember stick holding my gun out the window, just like a cowboy would do with a horse, except I had I was in the ram charger, and I was firing shots up in the air, herding the cattle back towards him, <laughs> and then he was herding them back through the gap in the gate back into his owner's land. And so we were actually helping the, the rancher out there round up cattle. And yeah, we didn't think anything of it back then. Yeah, yeah, no, there is no way, no way we could have gotten away with that any time in, you know, in the last maybe even 10, 20 years, if not more. Uh, yeah, well, out there it was so remote, it was, there was no other people out there, so you didn't have to worry about the bullet coming down anywhere, but you used the gun as a tool. You didn't have to account for your ammunition or every time you shoot a snake or whatever else. We just, that was a routine back then. Yeah. And so, uh, did you have any close calls or uh, any any um, major situations that happened to you personally while you were out there uh, in Presidio? Yeah, yeah, we had a had a few <laughs> that um, no reports were made on, <laughs> but yeah, we had a, we had a few that that, uh, that that happened. Well, those are the ones I want to hear about. <laughs> Absolutely. But you had to do it back then. You come out with that, you know, uh, federal officer stop thing, you're going to get your butt shot off. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And uh, and you're saying that, yeah, that one, that, that that quite didn't get, the report didn't make it back to the station, uh, you're saying? No, but he didn't want to say anything, and I didn't say anything. I, I wasn't with him. I was, uh, 
about oh, 200 yards away, but we saw it all happen. Yes. You know, I mean, uh, they had one one time, as a matter of fact, I'm trying to think of who it was, we had stopped uh, a truck, me and Wayne Weimer, uh we had stopped a guy on the highway, and I was at the driver's door talking with him, and Wayne came up on the passenger side, and the guy underneath the towel on the front seat had a gun. I didn't see it, but Wayne saw it. Mm-hmm. And so had he reached for it, uh, Wayne was going to take him out. But no, the guy didn't do it. But uh, we had just several close, you know, a little close call. I didn't get into any major shootouts like Hondrick did and uh, Conover and stuff like that. It was real close. We used to work that area down by Redford, Texas and stuff. That was a real bad area. Yeah, but they did happen. Oh, yeah, they had them. Yeah, Hondrick shot that one guy. Um, him and uh, Clarence White had driven down the Pullville Crossing down there in Redford. And then uh, down there in Redford, the town across from Redford is called Mulatto. And it was founded, uh, I guess, from way back in the 1800s, we heard it was a bunch of, there used to be a black uh, buffalo soldiers down there, a black cavalrymen. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of them had deserted and gone into Mexico, and then they wound up staying over there and everything. And so you can tell by looking at the aliens, they're a little bit different, a little bit darker, just a little bit slightly different look to them. And they're rough as heck. Boy, they'll fight. Every time you try to arrest one, you're, you're going to have a fight. Yeah. And it was a real dangerous area. Anyway, Heinrich and Clarence had gotten down there, and they were walking down towards the river, and this alien down there, there was a group of them along the bank of the river on the American side. One of them pulls out a handgun and opens fire. So Clarence dies to one side. Phil, he drew his gun, and he was just going to try to fire two shots as he was diving to um, scare him, you know, so yeah. give him time to get behind a bush. And just by pure luck, he, he's a good shot, but he wasn't that good. The first <laughs> shot shot the gun out of the guy's hand. No and kidding. The second shot, the second shot hit the guy in the knee and dropped him. And the rest of the alien said, "Holy shit, this guy's good." <laughs> he took an all butt. This alien, he's still down there on the bank of the river, crawling around trying to see if he can get to the other side. Or Bill runs down there real quick and grabs him and just pistol whips the heck out of him right there on the bank of the river. Oh, gee. And they, they hauled him back in the back of the Jeep. He was, of course, his knee got blown out. Uh, a three fifty seven Magnum went right through his knee. Yeah. Knee joints. So, uh, anyway, they hauled him up to the hospital and everything, and then they prosecuted him. But uh, that, was, that was just stuff that happened. <laughs> I wouldn't say a routine basis, but it's stuff that happened, you know, pretty consistently down that Redford area. And uh, uh, who was that gentleman you said that fired those shots and, and, and uh, ended up hitting the gun and his knee? It was Phil Hondrick. Phil Hondrick. And I bet, was he a legend after that? Uh, I, I guess. <laughs> or, or was it all in a day's work? It was not. I said, or, or was it all in a day's work? <laughs> it was, he had to do a report on it, and then they went up there to Pecos when they prosecuted the guy. They had to do it, but... Uh, you never heard about it. I mean, it didn't make that. That report didn't make it throughout the patrol. I guess because nobody got killed or anything. Right, but man, what a what a uh, what a shot those were! And you said that he he just did it on instinct. He did it on instinct. He yeah. said, oh, "Yeah, go talk to him." I mean, he and I worked together a bunch out there. He said, "I wasn't." He said, "I was just trying to scan a guy so I could 
get behind cover, he goes in the bullets. I mean, <laughs> first one hit the guy right in the wrist, messed up his wrist for the rest of his life, and the second one hit the guy in the knee. That was a two. He said that was the two luckiest shots he had ever made in his life. <laughs> 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 oh man so then um, but, go ahead sir but most of all he was a Vietnam vet and probably uh, at least half the guys out there were all Vietnam vets so, I mean so they've been in, in firefights and stuff before so it was a different the people they hired back then like when I got hired on in the 112 there was no street hires everything was either a Vietnam vet or prior law enforcement oh well, then a lot of a lot of law enforcement experience already coming into the this whole situation, and obviously it sounds like you guys needed it. Yeah, we had. Uh, I remember in my class we had um, Baxter. I think it was his name was Baxter. He was a secret ex secret service agent. Marlstead and a couple of other guys were, were U.S. marshals. They had some of them had transferred in from other agencies into the border patrol. We had a lot of Air Force pilots. Um, Smith and Shields and some of the other guys, they all want to, uh, agent, Smith and Shields, Agent Orange got them, they were Air Force pilots, but uh, cancer got them uh. about 10 years into their career from spraying that Agent Orange. But uh, a good portion of my class was Vietnam vets. Now, sir, uh, tell me about, um, you, you know, your... Uh you know, your inspiration to take at, at pretty much as many pictures as you possibly could everywhere you went. Well, I, I saw some of the stuff when I was with the Harbor Police. I was only with the Harbor Police a year and a half in New Orleans, working the river. And some of the different accents we saw and shipwrecks and tug things and everything, I said, man, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, man, I wish I'd have had a camera with me to get pictures of some of this stuff. People wouldn't believe what was going on out there in the riverfront. And then when I got hired by Border Patrol, I bought this little 110 pocket camera. I said, I'm going to get some pictures of this place. I said, uh, you know, it'll be something I can look back on. I don't know what made me do it, but um, I did. I bought a little 110 pocket camera that could fit in my top pocket, my uniforms. Mm -hmm. And then we just started taking pictures. I had my roommate take pictures when we were going through the PT course there at the academy and different things. I carried this little camera with me all over the place. And just started taking pictures when I was working, you know, of, of anything. I carried, I tried to carry an extra pack of film with me all the time because you only carried, I think back then you only got maybe 12, 12 shots to a, to a roll. It was a little cartridge that you dropped in, mm -hmm. in this camera. And it was hard to find those because there was only two stores in Presidio. And if they ran out of film, it might be another week before you could ever get any more film. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I used to carry one all the time took pictures of as much stuff as I could. And I'm looking back, I'm sure glad I did it. You try to tell people about some of the stuff and they wouldn't believe it. You know, they, they think, oh, you're full of, you know, you're full of shit. You're lying or you're making that up. I mean, no, it really happened. Yes. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I, I think that uh, everybody is grateful that you did that because uh, when you were posting, you know, I, I know that recently, my my site ended up getting the settings changed. So, but you were posting a ton of pictures, and everybody was you know really look you know being able to see that and see what you did and see your adventures and see a lot of the stuff that made us make us you know in in, in you know in the newer patrol cringe because it's like man if we if we had gotten a picture of ourselves at a checkpoint pointing a gun right anywhere we man it'd have been over for us. Man, 
we didn't even, our guns weren't snapped. Y'all was work checkpoint with an unsnapped gun, unsnapped holster. Uh-huh. Everything back then was Jordan holsters, but the checkpoint is the one area where you're going to get into a quick draw. Like if something happens, it's going to be who can grab the gun the quickest. Yes. When you're up there standing next to a vehicle. So everybody out there automatically worked a checkpoint with their gun unsnapped. Wow. And um, you, you'd be out at a checkpoint like, that one of me shooting a thing and shooting at a jackrabbit out there. We did that all the time. Or we'd shoot at the, the oh, I said, no, this will here make you cringe now. <laughs> Borland and Campbell, I said two last names. I don't remember their first name. They were the two highway patrolmen who worked that area. But they never came down to Presidio unless, because there was no traffic accidents. There was no reason. You never saw highway patrol down but by Presidio. It was DPS. But they'd come down once in a while just to talk with us down at one of the checkpoints or something. And uh, anyway, we always had a, a contest with them. And that area where we would shoot there, that was uh, the nine-mile checkpoint, was somewhere out towards the Presidio Airport there. Where that was the only tree that had that mesquite tree that you see all those pictures. That's the only mesquite tree out there. So that was the, where we had some shade. We'd set up. Well, there was a way up the road, there was a curve sign. A little, you know, there was a curve in the road, just a point old traffic sign. Yeah. It was probably, I guess, at least a quarter mile, maybe a little bit further. And they'd drive down there and get out to the checkpoint and be talking with us. He might go two hours and not even see a vehicle. He's just out there in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Well, uh, we'd have a contest to see who could hit that sign. And so you'd stand on the highway and aim down the highway with your gun, with a six gun, and you had to shoot offhand. You know, one-handed, Camp Perry style, you aim at this sign, and you shoot, and then you sit back and wait and see if you can hit a ding way down the highway. <laughs> and whoever hit it won, and we'd take turns. Like, uh, I would shoot, then Boylan would shoot, and maybe Loretto Vasquez would shoot, and then Campbell would shoot. So you alternate. And the first one to hit it, okay, if Borto hit it first, we were the winners. They had to buy the iced tea. Ah. We went back down to Presidio to Mary's Cafe. Uh-huh. Well, there was a spot on where we figured out after all the boredom out there, you could aim for a peak on the Chen one of the Chinati Mountains. We knew right where that notch was. If you <laughs> stood at this spot and aimed at that mountain that with a magnum load, that bullet would arc down there and it would hit that sign. <laughs> we knew right where to aim on that mountain range. <laughs> Leave it to PAs. You know, we always find a way, right? We always find a way to 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 uh, get around. You know, anything like that. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, once um you left, you said you were in Presidio. What two years? You said. Yeah, right. I was stationed out there two years. And I wish, in a way, I wish I'd have stayed longer. But just, like I said, it was nothing for a family. Hard to raise a family uh, there. Yeah. I didn't have any kids, but some of the guys did, and there was, uh, in the wives, the wives used to get together while we were working, a bunch of wives would get together and just drink coffee or tea over at different 
wives' houses, you know. Mm-hmm. There was nothing, no clubs. It was literally nothing to do uh, for, for pastime. There was you didn't have a gym. There was no hamburger shop. You couldn't you couldn't even get a prescription filled in Presidio. There was no drugstore. There was you couldn't get uh, a haircut. You had to go to either Mexico or Marfa. There was literally nothing. You couldn't. There was, didn't even have an auto parts store. I mean, there was nothing there. Yeah. And so it was a bad place to try to raise a family. And now, was there any way in those days that a PA could get in trouble, in actual trouble? Um, I guess if you did something really stupid, uh, nobody did. Okay. Uh, you'd have to, if you got, maybe, maybe got well, they didn't have any wrecks back then. If you got drunk, maybe, and ran into a store or something, I would do something like crazy like that. But uh, there was no incidents when I was down there where anybody got in trouble. The biggest one was when the whole half the station got thrown into jail over there in Ohinaga after that party that night. What? <laughs> um, and that was the, the biggest one of all, but Sector never found out about it. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, it was on the... the your Facebook group, you know, further down, some of the things you might not have seen in the discussion, some being some of the guys who used to work out there had. One of the guys had gotten married. It was either Kramer or Vargas. I don't remember. It was after one of their receptions. One of them had married. They had both married local girls. Anyway, but after one of those weddings, uh, a bunch of the PAs went over in Ohinaga in what they call the zone, you know, the red light district. Uh-huh. And they had about a dozen of them over there. And they they were all sitting around, standing around drinking inside this ballroom. And anyway, somehow a, a major fight broke out with a bunch of the Mexicans over there in this ballroom. And they wound up having a hell of a brawl, like something you see in an old Western movie. And they tore the place up. And Louis Stahl, who had, the, the, the reason it all started, I guess, because Stahl had, was, well, some girl was trying to put the make on Stahl. And the guy's boyfriend had walked in or whatever anyway whatever it happened the girl hid stall in her room and the rest of the fight broke out all over the place and they tore this place up oh, gee. and the police go in there and about 10 of them uh, got thrown in the Okinaga jail this night now well, is that still in the US or Mexico this was in Mexico oh jeez yeah so about 10 PAs are in the jail over there in Mexico <laughs> and uh the, the police chief over there in Ohinaga calls Murphy, you know, here on the American side, the PAIC, uh-huh. what happened, they had a big bar fight and a bunch of the guys are in jail. So they said, oh, geez, so he and JW go over there and uh, they get the guys out of the jail. Guys posted, there was no fine or anything because nobody got prosecuted, but they had to go back there and pay for the damages to the ballroom. So uh-huh. they all got together, scraped up their money somehow away and paid paid this guy for all the broken chairs and tables and you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and they all got out of jail and came back to the American side. And that was it. There was no paperwork. There was no memos. Second them knew about it. Uh, Nobody yeah. knew about it. Everybody kept their mouth shut. The only ones that got in trouble were the ones that got thrown in jail when their wives found out about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, that still hasn't changed. He kind of looked like Sergeant Schmarkle the way he was built. Big stocky guy with a crew cut and everything. And he, looked, and he was my next door neighbor. And man, when his wife found out what had, that him getting put in jail, he looked like a whipped puppy when she finished with him. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So you, so you pretty much could go out and you were on your own when it came to work, but you got in trouble. These guys ended up getting in trouble by go going into Mexico to the red light district and partying and brawling. This is yeah. this is old patrol gold. <laughs> and, and nobody back then you had a code. What happened in Presidio stays in Presidio. So sanitize everything and make sure it looks pristine for when Sector shows up. Classic. That's classic. Oh man, that's so good. Uh, and so, sir, you know, we, we're running a little bit out of time, and I'm sorry we are because this has been this has been just fantastic. I mean, the the everything was good. The the brawl in Mexico is was worth the price of admission alone today. But uh, talk to me a little bit about what happened when you you moved on from Presidio and 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 uh, to retirement. What did you do? Uh, what did you do after you left Presidio? And then tell me a little okay, bit about well, when you got to retirement. After Presidio, I went to Lake Charles, Louisiana. So I'm, I'm Cajun. I'm from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go back to New Orleans. I wanted to get out of the big city. I enjoyed the smaller towns. So I went to Lake Charles, which was a little bitty four-man station. at a seaport. And I spent the rest of my career here, but we went on details all over the place. I mean, I've worked in California to Florida all the way up to Oklahoma and got into all kinds of trouble, um, different things that basically did it all. Mm -hmm. A lot of crew control, anti-smuggling, you name it. Oklahoma's where we got into that big cocaine seizure, my partner Craig and I. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, that 
that's back, um, that happened in the 1988, July 21st of 88. Uh, the sector for couple of years have been, the well, service have been trying to close down the Miami-Oklahoma station because it was kind of remote out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the two agents that were left there, they only had about three years to go till they could retire. Mm-hmm. Well, the service should just let them stay there and retire. These guys have been there for years. And not a service, typical, you know what the service is. They're going to say, no, they forced them, forcibly transferred them to New Orleans sector down to the Orleans station. Mm. And um, they were fighting it the whole way, but they were they were finally losing and the word came to close the station. Well, they had a congressman up there that didn't want the station to close, and so he, the service was having to detail two agents up there every two weeks, a little short two-week details, two different guys. You get, get from within sector, you get an agent, out of one station, agent out of another, and the two will go up there and work it for two weeks and come back, and then two more to replace them. This went on all that spring of '88, uh, and then I was Craig and I. Craig was out of uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and I was out of Lake Charles here. We got sent up there, and we were the last detail. We were ahead of security. We we're gonna go up there. Undo the safe, get all the operational lariat folder and all the secure files and everything and the, the weapons. We we're supposed to bring everything back with us. Mm-hmm. Shut the station down. We went out on the interstate, I think it was 44 maybe, the, the Will Rogers Turnpike. And we had, we had fishing poles in the back of the car. <laughs> so we were up there, the sector said, just go up there, R&R, two weeks, don't do anything. We'll tell you when to, what day to, to come back. Well, we had stopped at the toll booth because had a guy there that had a farm, a ranch, and he had a pond, and we were going to go fishing. And we stopped to, <laughs> to find directions to this thing. And while we're talking to him, here comes this rental truck pulls up, a Hertz truck with two Colombians in it. Oh. And, uh, and we saw somebody, and one on the passenger, he starts staring the hole through the floor, you know, wouldn't even look at me. And I told Craig, hey, look at these, look at these two. You know, he's, he says, oh, man, this is a load. I said, yeah, bingo. Man, we, this got to be a load. <laughs> so uh, we asked him right there at the toll booth, hey, you know, want to see the documents? They both pulled out the old uh, legalization cards. Yeah. You know, the uh, seasonal, ag- the saw cards, seasonal agricultural worker cards for the amnesty thing way back then. And we didn't have time right there at the toll booth. We said, hey, go ahead and pull over on the side. Let's talk to you. We don't want to block traffic. That was the excuse we used. We got to pull over on the shoulder of the road. And the story didn't add up. Long story short, um, they showed us a receipt with brand new furniture coming out of Houston. And these guys are heading to New York. Now, who's going to drive, travel from New York down to Houston and buy new furniture and head back to New York? Mm-hmm. I mean, the story didn't make sense. So we wound up getting 1,700 pounds of cocaine in the back of this truck. Son of a gun. Yeah, pure, pure straight coke. 53 million bucks worth of uh, cocaine. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah, the Kali cartel. Oh, my. But it was, uh, it was U-Haul boxes in the back of a Hertz truck. So we said, uh-oh, there's got to be a U-Haul truck out there someplace. So we got a hold of DEA, and uh, they set up real quick, and they caught two more truckloads on the way to New York. All told, with a 5,000-pound shipment. Divide among three trucks. Son of a gun. And it all got taken down. And we did win them, but then DEA sent us a notice like two weeks later that the Colombians were looking for us. Oh, jeez. 
you know, they had, they took down a hit team there in New York, and they found the hit list, and man, Mayor Ed Koch was on it, the New York DEA office head was on it, and they said unnamed uh, drug and addiction agents from the Gulf Coast. That, that was Craig and I. Holy They knew we came from outstations, but we didn't say where, and we didn't let our pictures be taken or anything, so they right. had to where to find us, but we had to really watch our backs there for a while. So you made... And then uh, the, it, they wound up after this thing hit... Uh, Ed Meese was the Attorney General. Uh, Washington forced the Border Patrol to reopen that station and to reman it. And so the agents that got transferred out forcibly to New Orleans, they got sent back and at least got to retire there. Ah. So that, that worked out good that way. I, and I have, the sector would, uh, the service was mad at us for having done that. They were furious at me. <laughs> Because I was the senior agent at the time when we went up there on that detail. Yeah. And um, but I have no regrets about doing it. I'd do it again. I remember when uh, in 80, 88, that fall of eighty eight, Craig and I, he and I were always getting in trouble together. <laughs> I see uh, that. Or getting into incidents together, I should say. We went up to Washington D.C. to get our Newton Azraks left over from the Oakdale riots. Of the previous year, they had, we had to go up there to receive those. And somebody out of central office, I don't even know his name, but he said, uh, he didn't tell me anything about getting, he didn't say congratulations or anything for the Newton Azraq. He just said, you're the, you're, she, he goes, he goes, uh, Topman, he goes, you're the one of the ones that made that dope bust up there in Miami, Oklahoma, huh? I said, yes, sir. He goes, I just want to let you know, you sure cost us an awful lot of paperwork. <laughs> or sometimes, something along those lines. Man, I was biting my tongue to keep from telling this guy to kiss my ass. I'll bet. I'll and, bet. Uh, I just said, yeah, sure did, huh? I smiled and turned around and walked away from him. And then Craig and I, we got our, after we got our awards, we walked down the street and went into a bar and had a few drinks. We didn't want to be, be around those people. I'll but, uh, bet. Yeah, they never did forgive me for it. <laughs> Well, you know what? That good for you, and man, you made it onto a cart, a, a, a Colombian hit list. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Not by name. I mean, they knew who we were. Right. But they couldn't find us. That's amazing. That is amazing. So, when when did you end up retiring? Uh, I got so fed up with all the stuff going on, the way they were treating me, and the different stuff that happened that. Uh, when I turned 50, I turned 50 on March the 25th of, of 03, and I retired at the end of that pay period. Ah. Uh, as soon as I turned 50, I said, that's it, I'm out of here, goodbye. And uh, I've never been back since. I it's been, that's been, shoot, 17 years. I hadn't even been by the station uh, here in Lake Charles. I hadn't even gone by there. Ever since. Ever since. Yeah. Yeah, they, they had so many stupid rules that came out. We had a, uh, a chief, I won't mention names, but anyway, okay. she became chief of uh, New Orleans sector, and this was back in the 80s, late 80s, and like, they came out with a rule that said, she says, you're not allowed to call anyone in the office by their first name. Like, uh, I work with Craig Weinbrenner. He and I made that dope bus together. I got our new Nasrax together and the Oakdale riots. We got into all kinds of stuff together. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to be riding down the highway and say, hey, Craig, you want to get something to eat? I'd have to say, Mr. Weinbrenner, would you like to get something to eat? Can you imagine a rule that stupid? 
And that was uh, that was an actual, you know, a policy. No, that was a, uh, yeah, that was an actual memo. I still got a copy of the damn thing. Oh, gee. You were not allowed. You no one was allowed to call any of their coworkers by their first name. You had to address them as Mister or Miss. We didn't have any females, but uh, you had to been one. You would have to say Miss or you know Ms or whatever, uh, and the last name. You couldn't call them by their first name. Wow. I mean, Amazing. that's how stupid these rules were. That was a political correct correctness starting to set in. And then uh, I said, no, nah, I can't put up with this stuff, this kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. I didn't need the I enjoyed the, the work at the time. Had I been able to transfer back to Presidio, I probably would have stayed in, you know, uh, longer. But as soon as I turned 50 and I saw all this political correctness, you couldn't call them wetbacks anymore, even though we did in the academy. That was routine. Then you couldn't call them illegal aliens. And I went out to the border and they, uh, on a detail, they started calling them UDAs. I said, what the heck's a UDA? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yep. Sound like some kind of birth control device or something that a woman would use. They go, no, no, it's an undocumented <laughs> alien. I go, you mean a wet? They go, yeah, well, you can't say that. You get in trouble. I go, oh, you got to be kidding me. Anyway, it, it, just an example. It yes. changed so much that uh, I just said, the hell with this. I'm getting out. It felt like it took, it took all the fun out of it for you? Exactly. It would, the patrol wasn't the same anymore. I went on a detail to, uh, it was in Douglas, and they had some uh, trainee, a uh, female, it doesn't really matter whether male or female, it's turned out to be a female. Anyway, one of the guys had hauled in an alien who had given him some trouble anyway, and he sat the guy down rather hard in the chair and yelled at the guy, and uh, went off to go get some form. And I heard her. She didn't know I heard her, but I heard her ask guys, do you want to make a complaint? Mm. Ask that to the alien. Tell her dang what. I'm thinking, here you, it, these are people in your own ranks, you know, to get right, willing to stab you in the back and everything. I said, no, I don't need this anymore. So, yeah, I, I pulled the plug. Well, sir, uh, control I... had changed. Yes. Too much for me. I hate to close this uh, this podcast down. It has been such a pleasure and such a thrill ride to go through and talk these experiences with you. And I want to thank you for participating in this episode of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. Uh, I think everybody's going to get a real kick out of listening to your experiences. Sir, and, and, and I want you to know how much of an honor it is for me to have sat here with you and just experienced this firsthand. Well, sir, uh, take care of yourself. Godspeed. And um, again, thanks for sharing this great experiences with us. And uh, you take care. Um, honor first. Okay, thank you. Honor first. I agree. I hope you enjoyed our outstanding interview with Old Patrol Agent Charles Kaufman. What an epic and truly enjoyable thrill ride this was. Some seriously great stories that will probably make our management cringe a little bit. <laughs> Come browse through the Old Patrol HQ store for some amazing products that you can wear proudly, honoring the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol, with a few shenanigans along the way. You can find those at oldpatrolhq.bigcartel.com. Ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first. Honor always.